Tom, uh, as uh, Larry referenced in his prayer, is in China. And I didn't really make the connection on why he went now until I read the passage through a few times (laughs) and uh, recognized that in this sort of short bit of scripture, um, we encounter uh, signs and wonders and references to Jonah and uh, Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba and then something about demons cleaning out the house, coming back into the house with some more demons and then, then some whole, is that really my family? That's not really. And I realized that, that I think he just went to China because he was trying to duck out on this passage. And, um, but that's okay. That's okay. I, I, did, I joke about that, but I, there were more than, more than one slots this week when I was preparing that I thought I wish Tom was in town because it, um, it's loaded. But, but I, what I pray is that what we'll see is not three dis, sort of disparate pieces that don't connect. But we'll see a very, as we generally see in Scripture, a unified um, communication to us that, that makes a lot of sense, uh, particularly when you take them together. So with that said, let me, let me introduce a little bit, um, just by bringing us, looking back to where we've been over these last number of weeks in Matthew, and really um, the larger context there of this new kingdom that Jesus has brought, that Jesus has initiated and, you know, it's, it's a new kingdom with justice, it's a kingdom with mercy, it's a kingdom with power. Uh, it is a new and wonderful kingdom. And that's really what we've been um, discussing over these last number of Sundays. Uh, more immediately, um, particularly over the last couple of weeks, we've seen this new kingdom sort of on display, um, both in the, the power and the compassion of Christ. Um, there had been powerful people before, but no one like Jesus in terms of power, you know, power over everything. And there had been merciful people before, but no one with the mercy of Christ, no one with that kind of power and compassion and together, uh, very much very God. Uh, So we've seen his power and his compassion, and we also see uh, how people respond to that. And even as Tom said last week, uh, we see a mixed response. Some are drawn to it, some are uh, confused by it, and some wanted to kill him which is ironic, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But the new kingdom that Jesus uh, initiates uh, creates conflict. Um, I think there are a number of books that, that are out about kingdoms and conflict and, and such titles. And in fact, that's what happened, and we'll see much of that today. Uh, the overview of the passage, just to sort of give you these, these three parts that I reference, um, and then sort of maybe make an appeal to see them as one, and then we'll jump into each one. Uh, so it'll be fairly simple. There are going to be uh, three big points, you know, three sections and one slide each. And then we're going to have sort of a closing slide with some observations and some application. Um, the three pieces from 38 to 42, uh, some religious people, some very religious people, in fact, are looking for a sign. And not a miracle, mind you. They've seen many miracles. But they want a sign. Uh, that's a very interesting piece. And it it transitions into what in some ways could look like a disjointed sort of next step, but really it's, it's a parenthesis of sorts that we'll talk about uh, this little teaching on demons and what happens when you cast one out and can they come back. Very, you know, sort of um, not language we probably talked about this week when we were at Starbucks or, you know, at the race or something like that. Um, and then finally, almost just another turn completely, um, in the middle of all this dialogue, there's a knock on the door, and they say, Jesus, your mom and your brothers want to talk to you. And, and Jesus pivots on that. 
and doesn't go to a new place. He actually ties together all three of these pieces and talks about the kingdom. And so what I would hold down is the first piece, that sign-seeking is going to show us an example of how you don't make it into the kingdom. It's not a way to get kingdom membership. The second piece is going to speak to some danger associated with looking for the kingdom the wrong way, that wrong way. And then finally, we're going to see in family identity what the kingdom's really about, who's really got membership in the kingdom. So let me just begin with um, 3842, and I'll read it. Uh, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, uh, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You know, that's, that's plenty. That's probably a few sermons right there, right? But let's begin with um, what's going on. Uh, scribes and Pharisees, y'all know, you know, most of y'all are church folk. The scribes are the people who were writing and sort of uh, making copies of, of Scripture, so they knew it pretty well. They sort of wrote it for a living. Then Pharisees were generally lay people. Uh, they weren't uh, officially clergy generally, but they were very committed, I mean, really committed. Um, one of my favorite um, sort of um, anecdotes about, about the Pharisees was... Um, uh, and y'all may have heard this, they used to have lots of interest in references or names, and one of them was they were the, the people with the, the damaged heads, the damaged foreheads, because they were so concerned, it's, it's been written, about looking on a woman uncleanly or impurely, that if a woman was walking toward them, they would, they would put their head down so far they wouldn't see in front of them, and they walked into stuff constantly. I mean, that's, that's commitment. And, and, you know, we... We often are really tough on the Pharisees because we don't necessarily see their, their way in us, and we'll, we'll get to that maybe by the end. We may be more kin to them than we think. But let's understand, these were not you know, slackers. These were committed people, very committed people to their religion. Um, they, came and, and, and they came with pretense. Um, in fact, uh, they were pretentious because they, they began with saying, uh, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But we know from the last several Sundays, the last thing they saw Jesus as was their teacher. They saw Jesus as a threat. They saw him as a kook. They saw him as a lot of things. But they, you know, calling him a true teacher would suggest that we're, we're submitting to you, Jesus. Teach us. But in fact, they, they weren't looking to be taught. They were looking to, to catch him. And thus the word crafty. Um, the way they had it, it was kind of, they were going to win either way. They said, give us a sign. And again, a, a miracle, they had seen lots of them. A sign is different, right? A sign, uh, miracles can have these really practical values of, of feeding and healing and things like that. But a sign sort of has a special effect of being, wow, God's making a point on that. He's, he's, he's confirming or he's, he's, he's making a statement through, that, through the miracle and thus it becomes a sign miracle. Um, they ask for the sign, realizing that if he says no, they can go, see, you couldn't do it. So you really aren't God. And if, you, if he does one, they can discount it. You know, he had just done some pretty impressive stuff just a few verses up. Uh, deaf, mute, oppressed, 
healed, healed, and healed, and that didn't move them. In fact, they said, well, you can do that because you can get rid of the devil because you are with the devil. That's your bunch. So uh, they were not looking to be taught. They were looking to catch. Uh, they were looking to, to protect their religious position and their authority and their power. He was threatening that because he didn't come in preaching get more religion. If anything, he was hard on religion. And so they go to catch him with their little crafty and pretentious approach. Um, and I would submit that Jesus has called them on it before, um, and I would call them on it again now. It was born out of unbelief. You know, this, just to restate what I just said. Understand that signs in and of themselves are not evil. Uh, Gideon asked for a sign. Uh, but he didn't ask it, and you remember that from the Old Testament maybe? He, he didn't ask because he was trying to trick God or test God. He was going to be obedient. He wanted to know if God was going to be with him. So his was not out of disbelief. Gideon's sign, his request was in fact out of belief. And that's why he didn't get condemned for it. This is not that. This is some religious people trying to perpetuate their power, their authority, and Jesus was going to have none of it. And thus he responded uh, with a rebuke, a rebuke of, uh, of, their, of their motives, of their heart. And he, he does so in, in sort of Old Testamentish language. He called them wicked and adulterous people, a wicked and adulterous generation. And those words, you know, they're not synonyms, really. Uh, wicked sort of is the horizontal word. Wicked says this is how you treat people around you. And that, you don't have to go back. You just go back to last week's sermon. Think of somebody uh, Think of somebody that you might know who has been blind and deaf and oppressed maybe their entire life. Let's, let's say 30, 40 years, over how long it's been. And, and, and this Messiah comes along and delivers them. And the religious people go, Why, why'd you do that? Or, or in some examples, why'd you do that on Sunday? How dare you heal that guy on Sunday? I mean, what could be more hateful than spiting or despising that somebody who needed to be healed was healed because they didn't do it the way you wanted them to do it or the day you wanted them to do it on? That's, I would argue that that's, that's, that's wicked. Uh, wickedness is, is sort of how we treat people, how people treat each other. Adultery, in this sense, is, is vertical. Uh, this is about people who claim to be um, close to God. This is a group of people... Uh, these religious leaders would say that we are the bride. We are the one that God loves. We are the chosen. We are the apple of his eye. They could just go on and on with why they were so preferred by God. But it would beg the question, well, if you're so married to him, if you're so preferred, why do you go a-whoring all the time? Not just in the Old Testament when they went after statues and, and, and sort of tangible gods, but even in the New Testament, when, when the religious people set themselves in power, when they set their rules in power, when they made any alternative to God but God himself, they became adulterers. And again, uh, we, we may want to see ourselves uh, there more than we would uh, like. So he rebukes them, and he denies their request, but as if to say, but I, I will give you a sign. I'm not going to give you the one you ask for, because he doesn't, He's not uh, compelled to bite, if you will. But he says, you are going to actually get a sign. It's called the sign of Jonah. And, and just like Jonah uh, was in the, in the fish or the whale for three days and three nights, the Son of Man is going to be in the earth three days and three nights, and then he's going to come out, and you're going to see a real sign. It's going to be the ultimate sign. This is going to be the sign of one who could actually not just 
heal a body or a, or a limb or who could uh, make something turn into food, this is going to go to a whole other level. This is going to be power over life and death. This is going to be the absolute sign of kingdom power. So you're going to get a sign, but it's not the one you want. Now, let me make a couple of comments about, uh, about the Jonah piece and, and, and the three days and three nights. And um, I don't want to be hard. I think the last time I spoke, I made some reference to Vacation Bible School that might have seemed to be disparaging. I do want you all to know I, I love Vacation Bible School. I think it's wonderful. It's just some of the um, some of the collaterals that came with it when I were, was a kid are still scarring me to this day. And one of them was when I was a kid in vacation Bible school, we learned the story of Jonah and the whale. It was clearly a whale because maybe it was Broadman, whoever published it, said it was a whale, right? And and it was the whale that you get in Sunday school. So it was the kind of whale that if a little kid drew it, he it was purple, kind of like a Barney. If Barney were a fish, he was smiling. Right, because whales in the Bible always smile, and um, and he had lots of room inside because you could see Jonah in the poster. You could see him sitting up inside. His clothes were dry. His hair looked good. Um, it's like he could get an ottoman. It wouldn't be so bad in there. He could just put his feet up, and and I remember thinking that was just so fantastic. I didn't believe it. Now I could have never told anybody I didn't believe it, because then I'd look like an unbeliever. And one thing you don't want to look like in church is an unbeliever. Um, but I didn't believe it. It's being candid. It was, it was too fantastic for me. And I appreciated what they were trying to teach me, but I would tell you that that is probably not what was going on with Jonah. I don't think he was sitting there, you know, with the precursor to an iPad going, let me ride this thing out three days and do something exciting. I, I don't know what happened with Jonah. I know there are lots of, of, of thoughtful um, approaches to Jonah and the fish. Uh, I don't know if he, um, if there was an air pocket there. You know, there there are people that have went to great lengths to say that it is it is uh, physiologically possible uh, for for air to to support a body of a human size in certain maybe I don't know. Uh, maybe it's just a miracle. Uh, maybe maybe he died and. and he was brought back to life. I don't know. I do know this. Jesus looked at it not as an allegory. Jesus thought it was real. And in fact, Jesus used it to compare his own death and resurrection. And that was no allegory. That's what our hope is. So I believe, and I would encourage you to believe, that Jonah did go into the fish, and he did come out some three days later. I'll touch on that in a second. But I don't know that it was... Maybe like we thought it was back at Stubball Baptist when I was seven or eight years old. Now, the three days and three nights. I'm going to touch on that because it's important uh, as it relates to Jesus. There is sort of an idiom in the language. Three days and three nights. Three days and three nights does not refer to three, uh, necessarily three 24-hour periods. So I don't, I don't know how long he was in the fish, mammal, fill in the blank. I don't know how long. It may have been... Three full days, it might have been four hours on the first day, and then a full 24, and then it may have been four, which would be like 32 hours. I don't know. I know the reference was that in the day, and even in New Testament time, was that any portion of the day counted, and so three days and three nights was more of an idiom, sort of a figure of speech to say some period of three days. That's important because maybe like me, you've wondered, well, Jesus wasn't actually in the grave 
three days and three nights? Is that some historical inaccuracy in scriptures? You know, we go from Friday to Sunday morning. How does that work? But some part of Friday and Saturday and some part of Sunday, a consistent with the Jonah idiom, works. The fact is, he was um, in the earth. He was uh, in the grave for some portion of those three days. And so I don't want us to get hung up if anybody's doing the math going, I don't know the resurrection thing. It really wasn't three. Was that just something? Can I actually talk about that at church while I look like a bad person if I bring the, up that the math doesn't work? No, just study more. Ask questions. The fact is, it does work when you understand the language and the idiom. So he's not going to give them what they want, a show. He's not going to bite. Uh, but he is telling them that there is a sign coming. And then he jumps into this, or not jumps in, he moves into this, he pivots again. Um, and it's almost as if he says, by the way, speaking of Jonah, he didn't say that. That's sort of how I read it. Speaking of Jonah, you know, Gentile Nineveh repented when Jonah came to town. Now understand that the, the fact that they were Gentiles is no small thing talking to people whose religion and very identity is tied up on being God's Jewish favored people. So the fact that he would use Nineveh as an example was sort of a, a push. But Nineveh repented when, and, and keep in mind what they repented from. I, I wouldn't even dare to, to share the stuff they were famous for in, in, this, in this kind of mixed crowd, with, particularly with kids in here. Um, they were, you know, this was the biggest Syrian city. Some say at one, one time it might have been the biggest city on the earth for a season. But whatever, whatever however big it was, they were famous for doing atrocious things, not only to their enemies, but to their own people. Now, this was a, a terrible group of people. And when Jonah came and preached, they repented. So, so Jesus makes the point, um, Nineveh repented, and all they had was Jonah. And then he says, by the way, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, she came, another Gentile, now a Gentile woman, so now we're not just poking them, we're poking them in the eye. Because these were people that were not only proud that they were, they were Jews but, uh, and, and Jewish leaders, but they were very proud that they were men because that made them even more superior. Uh, Jesus' uh, treatment of women, very different, by the way, as should ours be. Um, but he says, so not only did Jonah go and Nineveh believed, but the queen of, from the south, the queen of Sheba, she believed too. And, you know, both of them had way less to go on scribes and Pharisees, than you do. And, and the point he brings out is that because they believed on so little and because the scribes and Pharisees uh, refused to believe was so much that, that is, that's a truth that won't be lost in the judgment. There will be a judgment. We believe that. I believe that. And it won't be lost in the judgment when, when, when religious people stand up and say, God, but look what I did. Look at all the things that I did. Look at how I, I never looked at a woman the wrong way. I've got a callus here to prove it. Or, 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 or think about how I didn't, I didn't move a finger on the Sabbath. I was so fastidious about the Sabbath. But they didn't do what they were told to do. And we'll come to that really in the third point. They didn't do the one most important thing. And so what Jesus suggests is that um, when they are ultimately defending their case before God, the, the judgment of God will reference the fact that even the, even the sorry lot, the sorry uh, lot by uh, these folks' perspective of Nineveh, they believed with much less, as did the Queen of Sheba, 
They actually are watching Jesus himself. They just watched him do incredible stuff, and it wasn't enough for them. So that's, that's a little bit on sign-seeking. Now, then there's this seeming sort of parenthesis where he says, by the way, and let me, let me read it. He says, when the unclean spirit is gone, now let me go back to the previous verse so you understand the, the transition. So I finished the first piece with the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. And then it says, I'll return to the house from which I came and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. It's one of those sort of whiplash moments. I mean, I was sort of tracking with you, Jesus. You're, you're letting them know that their religion is not getting them into the kingdom. I get that. What is this about? Well, keep in mind the larger context. Um, he's just cast out a demon uh, just a few verses up in our Bibles, and they had accused him of doing that because he was somehow affiliated with the demons. He was a part of the, 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 the Beelzebul. He was a part of that group. So he was one of the demons, effectively. So Jesus turns this, this piece and says, the son's spirit goes out and looks for dry places. Now, we don't have time to explore why they look for dry places. It was fascinating reading this week, I'll tell you that. Um, but it's not critical that you, we understand why, why they, A, have to be in a material form and why they seem to have a bias toward, toward dry over liquid. Is that, is that some kind of metaphor? Is that, what does that mean? If you want to talk about it afterwards, come up to me. I read more on it than I probably should have because it was very interesting. Um, but here's, what, here's the big point. Jesus says when the demon leaves somebody, when they, that person is cleaned up, if you will, the evil is gone. If you don't um, fill back up that empty dwelling, you know, they refer to a house, but it's talking about a person. If, if, if God doesn't fill that back up, you just leave it wide open for more to come back. And this time, it won't be one you know, the reference to seven, the number of completion, perfection, that the idea is that reformation of the person, you know, if you're going to cast out a demon, if they're going to be reformed and cleaned up, that isn't all you need because all you've done is sort of cleaned them up for the next demon or the next, the next problem. Let me, let me go on to, the, to make the point here. And, and maybe as we talk about what it, what it could mean. So, some have said this passage... Uh, is, is sort of a, a bigger reference to Jerusalem or to even maybe Judaism. It's saying that, you know, because uh, when Jesus came to Jerusalem and Jerusalem, and particularly the leadership, re rejected Jesus, that Jerusalem's fate was going to be bad because of that, that, that they were going to uh, be worse off after Jesus than before Jesus, and that's arguably true. Or that Judaism, the Judaism said we're looking for a Messiah, and he comes, and they say, no, nah, look, we'll look for another one. We don't like that one. He doesn't look the way we wanted him to look, and he really doesn't validate our position, really what's going on, like we thought he should validate our leadership position. And so Judaism arguably is worse off after Jesus 
reveals the kingdom, maybe. Some said that because um, there were lots of people, by the way, uh, pat, casting out demons back then, that wasn't thoroughly unusual. It wasn't just the apostles doing that. There were other, there were Jews that were doing that. And some say, well, this is a sort of a practical guidance for people who, who are casting out demons, saying that, you know, when you do that, um, make sure you, you, you give them something better to do or somehow clean them up morally or put them on a better path. Otherwise, the demon can come back in, like literally the same demon will come back in. Um, the, the, the first sort of commentary on on, on Judaism and Jerusalem seems a little broad to me. That one seems a little narrow. What I would suggest is the third option, which is the danger of reformation apart from Christ. Um, what Jesus is revealing here is that uh, when he came down to the earth, right, when, when he, he revealed himself um, and, and effectively um, wrestled with the strong man, I think you remember that from last week's, the passage talked about he, he contended with the strong man, contended with Satan, when he, when he made a way to defeat Satan, it was not enough to just um, have that stop or to have the demon go out. You had to embrace Christ. It, think of it this way. It's as if he's saying it's not enough for you to reform, to be cleaned up and get out of a bad behavior. You need Christ. You need to walk with Christ going forward. But that really isn't what people generally do when they self-reform. And that's why you know, self-reform is dangerous. What, what folk often do when they come into the church, so the, the demon example is, is, a, is a real one, but just think of it sort of in terms that we maybe would experience day in and day out. People come into the church and they, they start living right, however you define living right. They quit drinking and cussing and, you know, whatever, whatever they thought was wrong before. Um, sadly, we've got plenty of lists of things that people ought to quit doing when they come into the church. Um, and sometimes the church, the list becomes more important than anything else. But people come into the church and they stop doing bad things and they start getting active and they start, you know, being um, good little church members. But what if they don't really follow Christ? What if they don't really submit to Christ? What if they're not actually Christians? It's a very dangerous place to be. It's worse than before. Because before, there was hope that they would, be, they would be converted. Now they already think they're converted. They're church people now. But they're not converted. They think they are. You understand why that's more dangerous? It's way more dangerous to be a good church member apart from Christ than to be somebody out there who's never confronted the gospel or, or never you know, darkened the door of our church. I mean, think about it in your own evangelism. When, if you talk to people about the faith, it's really hard to convince a church person, particularly a good church person, that they need Christ. They've already, they're already there. They may be deacons. They may be elders. They may teach Sunday school and work in the nursery. It's more dangerous for them because they sort of think they're already in the kingdom. And just like when the, the, the demon Lee, uh, goes out, and, but Christ is not in place in that life, when we quit our bad behaviors, when we quit drinking and cussing, but Christ does not become our Lord, now we're still, we're still lost, but now we're self-righteous. And so we're worse off than before. And we become calloused. 
And every year that we're faithful in our local church, every year that we do those good religious things, the callous gets thicker and thicker and thicker. So that when somebody says, do you need Jesus, we become offended. Well, you, do you not know me? I'm a pastor. Do you not know me? I tithe off the gross. Um, do you not know that I went to Haiti or I went to pick your trip? Do you not know? And we're worse off than before. Here's the, here's the punchline on this section. Jesus did not come um, just to break our bad habits. Jesus did not come just to help us not cuss anymore. Jesus came to possess us. Jesus came to give us a heart of flesh, life. Because cussing wasn't our problem. That may be your thing. Maybe you just hate four-letter words, and yeah, we shouldn't cuss. I get that. But people don't go to hell because they cuss. People go to hell because they reject the Son of God. You know, earlier in this conflict from last week, this this sort of, you know, they, this crossroads where um, Jesus heals some, some guy and they say, you did it, um, you did it with the power of Beelzebub. You know, they really sort of put all the cards out there. Remember what he, he went to this unpardonable sin thing, which it turns out Tom uh, taught us well. It's not a sin. That's not something Christians should walk around going to, I hope I don't slip up and do that. Or, you know, when we're feeling like we're, we're distant. I, I wonder if I committed it. I, I remember when I was in college, I became a believer in college, and I remember a season thinking that I had committed the unpardonable sin. What a miserable time. Poor theology led to a miserable time. But he tells them, that's, that's the edge. You're, you're, you're on that edge right now. Because as you reject me, and as you cling to your righteousness, your hearts are getting calloused, and you're so full of your religious pride that you're attributing now what Jesus, what I did, and you're attributing that to, to Satan? That would be unpardonable because you're rejecting the Savior. It's like, it's not a sin with a small s, it's the ultimate sin. The purpose of the gospel is not just to cast out demons and clean up the house, and it's not just to get you to not have bad habits. It's that you would know Christ and that he would know you and that you would have joy in him. Heaven's coming, yeah, that's good, but it's not just about heaven. It's about now. It's about him possessing us. Let me make the transition. I'll come back to that in, in the close. Um, conversation's going on, and pick up verse 46 while he was still speaking to the people behold his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him but he replied to the man who told him who's my mother who are my brothers and stretching out his hand toward his disciples he said here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father is my brother my sister and my mother so you get the context he's he's uh He's preaching or teaching, and his mother and brothers uh, want to speak to him. I put an asterisk beside brothers because I just, just to make a small point, the scriptures naturally, the natural reading of that is his real brothers. 
Y'all may not catch that, but there are people who hold that Jesus' mother was a perpetual virgin, and thus she could not have had, he, he didn't have brothers and sisters through his mom. That is the teaching of a, a, a large body of people. Um, but, and, and that comes from church dogma, church tradition, maybe some, some root uh, attempt in, in the Apocrypha, maybe. But this passage very clearly and naturally says that his mother and his brothers wanted to talk to him. All right? Ever teaching, Jesus uses the opportunity. So he's contending with um, scribes and Pharisees, and he's, he's wrestling and teaching through weighty issues. Knock at the door. Your family wants to see you. And he pivots on that and says, who's my family? Who's really my family? He didn't say that to diminish the value of family. He said that, and this is a bit of a pun, he said that to relativize his earthly family. And by that I mean to show that relative to eternal relationships, you know, this, the fact that I've got a brother, my brother's name is Steve. He will be my, he's my brother. He's a little bit older than me. He's my brother for ever how many years? 60, 80, 90, ever how many years he'll be my brother. But it's just 60 or 80 years. And it's purely a function of DNA and biology. I have brothers and sisters in this church that will be my brothers and sisters for eternity. Founded on something way more than physiology founded on the merits of Christ. Much richer, much more lasting, much, much more fruitful. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not that he didn't love his mom. It's not that he didn't love his brothers. In fact, we have plenty of evidence that he loved them a bunch. He was a good son and a great brother. But he's making the point, the kingdom, my brothers and my sisters my, in the kingdom, they're, they're way more than just biological. And that, that begins to wrap this passage together because in the first piece, we had a group of people trying to get into the kingdom through religion, through, through their self-morality, their self-effort, their whatever. It was all about them. They, they, they didn't just want to get into it. They thought they were the kingdom. So there's a path to kingdom membership that is very much about us and our efforts. And, and, and in the middle, the, the, the demon passage says, be careful. That is, that's not only wrong, but it's dangerous. Because if you follow that pathway, you'll be hardened, and you'll be worse off, not closer to God. And then, no coincidence, I'm sure, when his family comes along, it gives an opportunity for him to say, let me show you what real kingdom membership looks like. It's the people who do what? Who do the will of my Father. Let me give you some examples of that. If it's not his earthly family or religious people, who is it? It's whoever does the will of his Father in heaven. And I, and I give you not only that from verse 50, but if you go back to chapter 7, you know, the reference there, 721, um, a very clear expression of these are the people that are my brothers and sisters, the people who do the will of the Father. So then what is the will of the Father? If, if, if this kingdom membership is not about being the most religiously good person being the most moral person, never messing up. What is it about? I'll give you just a few, but they, they tend to be sort of representative. John 6.38 says it's his will that we would believe and have eternal life. 
Not that we would be wonderful religious people, better than the people around us even, but that we believe. And that's that belief of confidence, of, of putting hope in, that we would believe in Jesus for our eternal life. Uh, the First Thessalonians passage 4.3, it's his will that we be sanctified. And it really follows. If someone really has come into the kingdom, that they will start acting like kingdom people. That's really not a stretch. And by the way, that really is not sort of for the ones who were super committed. No, being sanctified, or even the Romans 12 one, being transformed, that's just kingdom life. He's not, he's not establishing that you can come into the kingdom by believing in Jesus, and if you want to just go for extra credit, you can uh, be sanctified, and you can be transformed. Now, in Jesus' mind, there, were not, there was not this sort of multiple approaches to kingdom life. You were either in the kingdom through faith in Christ and being transformed and being sanctified, maybe slowly, maybe frustratingly, maybe not as fast as you should or could, but there's no category in the scriptures for you just got on the list, but none of that other stuff followed at all. At a minimum, it'll drive you crazy if you don't see any. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, it's his will that we be thankful. My goodness, if we recognize that we've been translated from a kingdom of death, a kingdom of frustration and futility, to a kingdom of grace where he did everything and all I need to do is rely on him. Well, sanctification, wanting to be like him, that really isn't a reach. Wanting to, wanting to be more like him and being transformed by the renewal of our mind and his word, that's really not outlandish. And being thankful is really not far-fetched either. It seems fairly rational. So let me, let me tie up, this is my last slide here, with, I think, uh, three observations. Religion, in and of itself, holds no favor with God. Now, let me be quick to remind you that uh, some of you may have already thought about James 1. Pure religion and undefiled. Pure religion and undefiled before God is that we might take care of the orphans and widows. So the scriptures are not condemning of pure religion. It's, but it, in that context, it's an outwork, uh, outworking of biblical faith. So real biblical faith, real kingdom membership will lead to action. The whole book is about showing it with action. That's not the religion that I'm talking about. That's an outworking of kingdom life. I'm talking about the religion that says, I can, I can keep that list. I can do that. Um, I can not just be hard on other people. I'll be hard on myself. The Pharisees, I, just, I think we're so tough on them. Think about the Pharisees and you'll feel really bad for them. <laughs> they, they, look, yeah, they, they clearly had a power trip going. But they worked really hard. Problem is, religion in and of itself carries no favor with God. And that isn't just their religion. That's Southern Baptist religion, or Presbyterian religion, or Methodist religion, or whatever religion you brought in here this morning. Religion in and of itself holds no favor with God, but it might be very dangerous. If, in fact, it replaces grace in your mind, then it becomes not just ineffective, it becomes damning. Because it is the very nature of, of that kind of religion 
that says to God, God, did we not do this in your name? Did we not do that in your name? Were we not deacons? And he said, I, I never knew you. So clearly, religion does not get you in the kingdom. Reformation is not the true end goal. Cleaning up is good. Um, not having bad habits is good. Not being mean to people is good. Not having coarse language is good. Not uh, drinking to excess is good. Not cheating on your taxes. Good. Difficult, but good. But reformation in and of itself is not the goal. So forget religion for a second. If you came in here today just trying hard, you really would prefer not to have been here. But you sort of know one day you're going to stand before him, and it's a little effort. It's a little effort. Maybe you'll get credit for that in the big scale of life. And I would say that just like religion, not only isn't enough, and it in fact can be dangerous, self-reformation isn't enough, and it's very dangerous. Because it makes you think, just like the religious people think, I'm okay, I'm a leader at first church. Fill in the blank with the denomination or movement of your choice. Likewise, there will be people who will cling to the hope of reformation. I could have a better ringtone than that. I can give you some afterward. <laughs> That's kind of lame. Um, Reformation not only isn't enough to get you in the kingdom, but Reformation is dangerous because it makes you hope in something other than the one who is worthy of hope. And finally, those seem to be sort of negative. Here's the good news. The third, much more enjoyable observation. The kingdom has no bounds. Age, gender, where you're from, where you went to school, if you went to school, how much money you have, if you don't have any money, if your hair's long or you're bald, if you went to Carolina, Mike, there's hope. Um, <laughs> the kingdom, because it's not based on religion. Kingdom membership, because it's not based on effort. Or, or, or wealth, or, you know, giving. You know, the fact is, people come to church all the time, and, and they're, they put money into play. And I think they think that's, we don't need it. As an elder, let me tell you, if, if you don't know Christ, we don't, we're not looking for your money. We're not looking for your labor. If, we, if you don't know Christ, we want you to know Christ. The, the kingdom has plenty of money, regardless of what you heard on TV. The kingdom has plenty. The kingdom doesn't care if you're from Africa. Kingdom reaches Africa. It, it doesn't care if you're from a big city or a little city. It doesn't care what color of skin you have. The fact is, because it's not about us at all, it's not limited to us at all. It's absolutely available. Kingdom membership is available to everybody that's hearing me right now. Everybody, equally, wonderfully, sufficiently. The only thing that will stop you from being in the kingdom, if you're hearing me now, is if you put your hope in religion, you put your hope in reformation, goodness, stringing together 32 quiet times in a row, 
whatever it is, if that's your hope, the kingdom will not let you in. It won't. But, but if you would look to Jesus, and that's where I'll go here now, finishing up with application. For those who don't know Christ, I have to believe that in a group this size, there are many who don't know Christ. Probably a good number of members who might not know Christ. Here's my encouragement to you. Please know, to just pound this point home, that the path to Christ, the path to the kingdom, to membership, eternal life and all the stuff that comes with it, but I'm talking about membership now, to know him now, to be his son or daughter now, that the path to that doesn't lead through religion or morality or identity, whether it's your mom and dad's great faithfulness, your grandparents were missionaries, you get a pass, you're a Republican or a Democrat, whatever. I can't make you come to the kingdom if you don't know Christ today. That's the work of God. But I would beg you to know what it ain't. It is not religion. So please, don't do us any favors by trying to be more religious. And it, it won't be about work. So please don't come join and work really hard to feel better about yourself. All you'll be doing is working on your callous on your heart. You won't be coming to Christ. Alternatively, consider the one who said he is the way. Because at the end of the day, you know, there's this broad, broad road and it's got religion and reformation and all those things in it. And then there's one who said, I am the way. He didn't say I am a way. He didn't say, well, you know what, I'm the shortcut, but you can get there. You can, you know, pay some purgatory dues, you know, join some stuff. I am the way, which by definition, when the positive state of the negative is implied, I, I learned that way back in the Carter years probably. If he is the only way, it means the other ways are not ways. And so if you, as you examine the kingdom, please know that there's only one way. And don't, don't, uh, don't put anything in front of it. We don't at this church, and 99% of you know this, we don't have altar calls at this church. I don't know about y'all, but I grew up with an altar call. You know, you have this, you know, you, you played hymn number 240, which is just as I am. <laughs> and, and you played, it had six verses, which seem relatively benign and short, but if you play them 32 times, it gets really long. Um, we, we don't do that here. It's a great song, by the way. Um, but we are not any less interested in you knowing and responding to the gospel. So, you know, if, if you want to know more about or talk more about kingdom membership, come talk to us. We, we may not have an altar call, but we have an altar and we call. Okay? So that's for those who don't know Christ. For those who do. You know, I would just ask you to think. Think about kingdom membership. It, it, it's, it's funny. It's, it's, it's like the old story about the person who had all this wealth. They had this, this inheritance, like in the trunk of their car or whatever, and they didn't know it, so they were living like a pauper. You know, we do have in kingdom membership incredible wealth. I don't mean wealth like buy you a new boat kind of or boats. I don't mean that kind of wealth. I mean we have real wealth lasting wealth, emotional wealth, um, eternal wealth. 
But if we don't think about it, it's not of massive value to us. If all we think about is other stuff, it sort of becomes almost what good is it until eternity. It'll come in handy then, I suppose. But you don't have to wait until eternity to enjoy your kingdom membership. So I would ask you, if you are a Christian here today, to think about what that even means. And I would submit that would lead you to be thankful. I don't think about it very often. I'll be very candid. You would think as an elder in a church, a good Reformed church, that I would think about it several times a day. But I have to be reminded by other people, generally, to think about it. But when I do, I'm thankful, and it does generally lead to joy. And it seems to affect my walk. And I would submit the same for all of us. As you think about, as you consider your own kingdom membership, if you're in that kingdom, it leads to gratitude and joy and ultimately an obedience. And, and I would submit also that it's hard to say you're in the kingdom and not see any of those things. If you say you're in the kingdom, but there is no thinking on it ever, there's no joy on it ever, there's no signs of any life, that very same James would say, come on, seriously? First John would say, really? Maybe we should examine that kingdom membership. It's okay to examine it, by the way. Multiple times in the New Testament, we're told to examine it. It won't hurt you. It can only help you. And then finally, and this is what I close with, guard against, and even confess where needed, any means of growth and a membership other than Christ. And, and Keith and I bumped into each other this morning. We were talking about how we might relate to the Pharisees. And the fact is, we are a lot more like them than we're not like them. Yeah, we, we don't go to the temple and do the stuff they do. But I will, I will be transparent enough, hopefully not to point to me, but, but, but confessing enough to admit I am way more like a Pharisee than I want to be. Because I do string together my, my manage my day or my, my, my emotions are guided by did I have a quiet time today and did I not do that sin? You know, we all have that sin. You know, the scriptures talk about the setting sin. We, we generally all have one that's just driving us nuts. Why do we keep doing that sin? could be something we say or something we don't, don't do, commission, omission, whatever it is. If, if the measure of my day is did I have my quiet time, because somebody may ask me later, by the way, and I want to be able to say I did. Did I not do that bad thing? And maybe to make it a really good one, did I tell somebody about Jesus, even if I did it very opaquely, very sort of, you know, slyly. If that's how I measure my day, I'm a good candidate for the Pharisees club, not the good Christian club, because I will have established a list of things to do on which I will base my hope, my confidence. Yeah, I'm a lot more like him than I am not like him. And I imagine y'all might be too. The way, you, the way you stop being like a Pharisee is to enjoy what he's done for us and respond to that. And so when you miss the fourth quiet time, okay, you weren't having quiet time so he'd love you. You have him because he loves you. So then the next day, have a quiet time. Self-flogging is a very little value, unless you just it's all about you or me. So um, I'm going to move us to prayer, and, and I'll open us in prayer, uh, and then I'll um, there'll be time for y'all to pray as well, um, and then an elder will close. And as Tom often does, I'd ask you 
sort of, you know, reading the rule book here. Uh, please pray briefly so that others can pray. Um, please pray clearly and loudly so we can hear you. And I would be a little bit more direct than Tom and say, if you generally pray, I don't want to inhibit prayer, but please consider, you know, waiting and seeing if others would pray. Yeah, yeah, do that, please. And it won't hurt us that there's silence. You know, I'm, I'm trusting y'all are praying yourself anyway. So I'm going to open us in a prayer. And what I'm going to pray, and, and what I, my, I prayed this week, is that the folks who heard this sermon today would either recognize kingdom membership is something they have, or that they don't. And if they don't, it can be had because it's available. And if, if you have it, be thankful for it, enjoy it, and then live it. Not much more than that. So let me begin uh, that time by praying. Father, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm trusting that you will, you will do through your word all the real work. It's, um, these are passages that were not layups to me, and, and I, don't, uh, I don't suppose that I've handled them masterfully, but what I do know is that you have said your word doesn't go forward without bearing fruit. Uh, that it's quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, it exposes our motives. Um, and so what I'm praying is that you would pierce us, pierce me, pierce all of us, believer and unbeliever alike, uh, by your word. Father, we, we know there are many, many, seemingly many ways to you, but there's really only one, and it's through Jesus himself. I pray we wouldn't miss the one way because we're so busy about the other ways. So would you um, drive this home to us, make it clear, would you call the lost to yourself? Even here today, would you call the lost to yourself? And would you encourage your own to, um, to know what membership really is and to enjoy it and to live in light of it and to thank you for it? I pray that in Jesus' name.